Welcome to Her Half of History. My name is Lori. The current series is Women and Money Matters. This is episode 3.7, No Taxation Without Representation in the USA. So last week, I talked about how women in Rome used the no taxation without representation argument to get out of paying taxes. But this week, I'm going to talk about how the same argument was used by American women. And these women were not trying to get out of taxation. They were trying to get themselves represented. And you might think it's a clenching argument in the U.S., right? Super catchy phrase from the revolution, all about how wicked and evil King George was towards the honest, hardworking folks from the colonies. When you've got a good marketing slogan, why change it? And indeed, the thought did cross the minds of some of the earliest suffragettes. Now, bear in mind that women were not paying income tax at this point because the federal income tax was only declared to be constitutional in 1913. So when people spoke about taxes in the 19th century, they usually meant state or local property taxes. And any woman who owned property most assuredly owed property taxes, making her a taxpayer without representation. Elizabeth Cady Stanton wrote, Should not all women, living in states where a woman has a right to hold property, refuse to pay taxes so long as she is unrepresented in the government of that state? Such a movement, if simultaneous, would no doubt produce a great deal of confusion, litigation, and suffering on the part of women. But shall we fear to suffer for the maintenance of the same glorious principles for which our forefathers fought and bled and died? Shall we deny the faith of the old revolutionary heroes by declaring inaction that taxation without representation is just? No! Like the English dissenters and high-souled Quakers of our own land, let us suffer our property to be seized and sold, but let us never pay another tax until our existence as citizens, our civil and political rights be fully recognized. Yeah, okay, so full points for drama and all that, but fiery speeches aside, the vast majority of women were not, in fact, prepared to let their property be seized and sold for the dream of a vote. And who can blame them? It's not like there were a lot of other economic opportunities for women. That would be a seriously major sacrifice for a cause that often seemed doomed to failure anyway. So this part of the suffragette plan never really took off in a massive way, but it did take off in a few isolated cases. For example, Julia and Abby Smith were two sisters living in Glastonbury, Connecticut. They were educated. Julia published her own translation of the Bible. They had been involved in the abolitionist movement and later the women's suffrage movement in a somewhat minor way. But their battle against the Glastonbury tax collector did not begin until they were ages 81 and 76, respectively. They owned Kimberly Mansion, which just so happened to be the most expensive piece of real estate in town. In November 1873, the value of their property was assessed at $100 more valuable than previously. A quick survey of their neighbors revealed that two widows in town had also seen a rise in value and hence a rise in taxes, but no property owned by a man had risen in value. I don't know if the Smith sisters knew enough statistics to know that correlation is not causation, but you have to admit the circumstances were suspicious, and the Smith sisters did not restrain their highly educated rhetoric. Said Abby, The motto of our government is, Proclaim liberty to all the inhabitants of the land. And here, Where liberty is so highly extolled and glorified by every man in it, one half of the inhabitants are not put under her laws, but are ruled over by the other half, who can take all that they possess. 
How is liberty pleased with such worship? All we ask of the town is not to rule over them as they rule over us, but to be on an equality with them. That is to say, no taxation without representation. But the speech had no effect, so Julia and Abby put their heads together and decided they would not pay their property taxes. In response, the tax collector seized seven of their cows. Newspapers took note. A defense fund was set up in their name, and indeed without even their knowledge or permission. They entertained reporters. Julia published a book. But when you take a deeper dive, you realize that the Smith sisters had some advantages that many women simply didn't have, like the funds to buy their own cows back at auction. At a financial loss, I'm sure, but they had the funds. Then their land was seized, which was a bigger hit. They won the subsequent lawsuit, but on a technicality, which didn't much help the larger cause of women's suffrage. The fact remained that many women wouldn't or couldn't take that route. The far more common approach to take was not tax refusal, but tax protest, by which I mean that they paid their taxes, but they attached a protest to it. One clever poet published her protest in a book called A Book of Rhymes for Suffrage Times, which included this little gem, which, I will point out, does not actually rhyme, but whatever. It goes like this. Father, what is a legislature? A representative body elected by the people of the state. Are women people? No, my son. Criminals, lunatics, and women are not people. Do legislators legislate for nothing? Oh, no, they are paid a salary. By whom? By the people. Are women people? Of course, my son, just as much as men are. Right, so women are people when it's time to pay, but not so much when it's time to vote. So, the no taxation without representation argument was out there, but it really wasn't a linchpin in the general suffragette strategy, and the reason for that is that it's clever and catchy, but in fact it's not really a good argument. Here I am relying on Juliana Tutt of the Stanford Law Review for the logic of the argument and how it was used, both by supporters of votes for women and opponents of votes for women. The first premise is that taxes without representation is tyranny. The supporters had the Founding Fathers' word on this, but antis could counter that women were not the only group that was not represented. Minors and foreigners fell into the same camp, and no one was claiming that they should be able to vote. And indeed, the very Founding Fathers themselves obviously thought the argument had limits, because they didn't give the vote to women or to slaves or even to many white men despite the fact that these people drank tea and used stamps and all the other products that King George and Parliament had been so eager to tax. So there's that appeal to authority smashed. Another premise was that large numbers of women were paying heavy taxes. Unfortunately, that argument was even more full of holes. As I said earlier, taxes usually meant property taxes, and most women didn't own property. Now, it's hard to feel too glad about that. There's a sexism problem there, too, but the point remains, many of them weren't paying property taxes. Sure, there were tariffs, making the price of goods higher, but the whole point of tariffs was to make the tax invisible. People didn't feel like they were being taxed. Ergo, we don't need to give the vote to women because they aren't being taxed. Some jurisdictions, like Montana and Louisiana, did grant women taxpayers the right to vote on tax-related questions, and that was almost worse for the suffragettes because they didn't want piecemeal representation on isolated issues. 
They wanted universal representation for women, and the fact was that women were not universally taxed. So many suffragettes came out against the taxpayer suffrage, which suited the antis just fine, as many of them were waxing on about how taxpayer suffrage was a slippery slope that would lead to universal women's suffrage, which would obviously be the beginning of total anarchy, destruction of Western civilization and all that we hold dear, and so on. In 1913, the 16th Amendment and the United States Revenue Act brought us the federal income tax which Americans all know and love, or something like that. Now, this actually strengthened the suffragettes' hand because vastly more women were taxed now that you didn't have to own property. You only had to have a salary, which still left out huge numbers of women, I might add, but it added a hefty amount to the list of taxpaying women. And lo and behold, only seven years later, suffragettes win and women get the vote. Note that I'm not saying that the income tax is responsible for that. There were a lot of other factors, but more women as taxpaying contributors did not hurt. And you may think that having achieved the vote, the argument is now done, but in that you would be wrong because there's more. There is no point in having a right if you can't exercise that right, and this is where we move into the poll tax. Technically, a poll tax has absolutely nothing to do with going to the polls. Etymologically, the word poll means head, as in the hair on your head. And poll taxes are a truly ancient form of tax whereby the government says, do you have a head attached to your body? You do? Great, you owe taxes. It's also called a head tax or a capitation tax, which is the terminology used in the U.S. Constitution, but in modern English that just sounds too much like decapitation, which is not what we mean at all. Loads of people have instituted poll taxes, everyone from Moses to Margaret Thatcher, and I have to say I never expected to write a sentence with both those two people mentioned in it. But anyway, poll taxes are very ancient, and when I was originally thinking about taxation and women, that was what I was thinking of. Namely, were women included in poll taxes or not? Did our heads count, or were they too substandard to count? That is actually still an open question for me, because lots of sources, including modern ones, say something like, everyone had to pay this tax, without specifying what they mean by everyone. It turns out that in the historical context, a lot of things labeled as for everyone does not in fact include women, slaves, children, or foreigners. Except that sometimes it does, so I'm still turning that one over in my brain, depending on the time and place in question. But when I was trying to find out things like, am I part of everyone or not, I was using Google, and if you Google poll tax from within the United States, Google thinks you are talking about the taxes waged at the polls in the American South in the early 20th century. I knew about the American South poll taxes, but I had learned about them in history class in the context of racism. The average black man was much poorer than the average white man, and therefore couldn't afford to pay the tax, and therefore couldn't vote. So sorry, too bad, maybe next year. It's disenfranchisement without legally disenfranchising anyone. The racism angle is definitely true, and I do not in any way mean to minimize it, but guess who else turns out to be much poorer than the average white man? That's right, your average woman of any skin color. The interesting thing about these southern poll taxes was that if you stuck to the traditional definition of what a poll tax was, then you could claim that it wasn't a voting fee. No, no, it was just a head tax, like many head taxes throughout history, including in the northern states. It's just purely coincidence that we never ask for proof of payment until you show up to vote. The amount was on the order of one or two dollars. If you are thinking, what's one or two dollars between friends, you should be aware that it was cumulative. 
if you have not paid in past years, you have to get completely up to date in order to vote. In 1936, one Nolan Breedlove owed the state of Georgia $13.50 in back poll taxes. It was the height of the Depression, and had he chosen to spend his pennies elsewhere, that same $13.50 could have bought him 50 pounds of grits, 25 loaves of bread, 10 dozen eggs, 20 pounds of pork and beans, 10 pounds of lamb shoulder, 5 pounds of chuck roast, and 50 pounds each of potatoes, yams, and cabbages. Not a trivial amount when unemployment is high, wages are low, and you are living on the edge of subsistence. Certainly there were wealthy women for whom this was not a big deal. But there were also single women struggling to support themselves, and for them it was a very big deal indeed. There were also married women who struggled. Bear in mind that a family would have to pay the poll tax twice in order to have both husband and wife vote. If you can only afford it once, the culture of the time pretty much guaranteed that it was the wife who would not vote. Even if you were a feminist woman, ahead of your time, eager to exercise your newly granted rights and earning your own income, you might run into difficulty. In Georgia, a wife's salary was legally owned by her husband. If he disagreed, she could not pay her own poll tax, regardless of how wealthy the family was. It was a similar deal in Texas. But not everywhere. South Carolina waived the poll tax for women on the slightly discouraging rationale that it would relieve husbands of the burden of paying for their wives to vote. I mean, yes, but at the same time, a resounding no. There's still something wrong there. My source on this imagines a circumstance where a South Carolina family might be too poor for the husband to vote, but the woman is free to vote, no charge applied, meaning that we might actually get more women voting than men. But I think the reason she's just imagining this scenario is that we have no actual evidence of this happening. It's all theoretical. Other subtle means were also tried. Alabama required that payment of poll taxes be made nine months prior to the actual election, like anybody's thinking of voting then. Men were reminded when paying property taxes that perhaps they might like to pay their poll tax too. But if you didn't own property, like most women didn't, no one would remind you. And by the time the election rolls around, it's too late. How much effect did this have? Well, one researcher found that in the 1940s, Alabama voter lists included two men for every woman in most of the counties. In rural sections, there might be as many as three or four men for every woman. This is not necessarily purely a matter of cost. It was often asserted that women were not interested in voting. And given current voter turnouts, I think it's true that many people, both men and women, are not interested in voting. However, the same study also found that sometimes a poor woman would say that she wasn't interested in voting because she was too ashamed to say that she simply couldn't afford it. And if you need further evidence, there is what happened when the poll tax was abolished. Louisiana did it quite early, in 1934. The number of men voting rose by 25%, which is not trivial the number of women voting rose by almost 100%. But most poll taxes were still in place, and women were still very much involved in the fight to get rid of it. It was a piecemeal battle, which I'm not going to go into here. Suffice it to say that state after state repealed it, and in 1964, the 24th Amendment was ratified, and it said... The right of citizens of the United States to vote in any primary or other election for president or vice president 
for electors for president or vice president, or for senator or representative in Congress, shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or any state by reason of failure to pay any poll tax or other tax. By then, most states had gotten rid of it anyway, but a handful had not, namely Alabama, Arkansas, Mississippi, Texas, and Virginia. And the amendment said nothing about what states could do with local elections. The Supreme Court ruled on that in 1966 and found poll taxes unlawful for any election. That case was brought by one man and four women, all five of whom were African American. Of course, by 1966, the question was much less important than it had been. The amount of the tax was coded into law, so it had not risen at the same rate as inflation. One or two dollars was nowhere near the monumentally prohibitive amount it had been when Nolan Breedlove had protested. So reduced burden and all that is good. Unfortunately, it was also true that other means of disenfranchising voters had been tried and tested by then, some of which are far more difficult to prevent than the poll tax. But as far as no taxation without representation is concerned, that is the full circle as far as I'm going to discuss it. Hortensia used no taxation without representation to mean that she didn't want to pay taxes. The early American suffragettes used it to say that they did want representation. And later women's rights advocates used it to say they wanted representation to be free and clear of any particular tax burden. My question is, if you had the option of giving up your representation in exchange for total tax exemption, would you take it? I've got a poll up on Twitter, Facebook, and the website, so please come on over, register your opinion, and I will tell you the results of the poll next week. I even promise not to tax you for it. I had two major sources for this episode, an article by Juliana Tutt in the Stanford Law Review and an article by Ronnie L. Podolewski in the Notre Dame Law Review. I suspect these aren't publications you keep on your coffee table for casual reading, but there is a link to them on my website, herhalfofhistory.com. Even if you're not interested in the links, please come visit to vote in the poll and come back next week to listen to Hetty Green, the Queen of Wall Street. Thanks. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. 
Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.